We're back. Woo! Oh, man. Okay, first off, I just want to say it is, today has blown me away with everyone that's been here. It's been so cool to see all of your faces again. A lot of people we haven't seen in a long time. Some people, like the only experience at Mission Bible Church they've known has been the parking lot. So this is an upgrade. So that's good. Um, for, um, for like a lot of us, though, like just stepping into this is so weird. So thank you so much for everyone. Um, I know wearing masks inside is super awkward, but I appreciate you being so flexible and rolling with us on that. That just, um, that's awesome. You guys are great. Uh, we are in a series, well, I, before we get to the series, I, right around the time that we went into quarantine, I had all these people um, send me these uh, videos of, uh, it was a clip back with Chris Farley running up and down the rows of uh, the David Letterman show. You guys remember that? Okay, and so this is what every pastor is going to look like the first week they're back in church, running up and down the aisles and picking people up and hugging each other and some other. And I remember when I first saw that going, yeah, that's about right. In fact, right now, honestly, everything inside of me on the inside is doing that. I was walking in, I'm just like, when I saw people at the first service in the overflow areas, I'm like, isn't this exciting? And they're like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I know, I know. And so it's just so cool. And, and if it wasn't for CDC guidelines, I would be doing all of that right now. So you could be grateful for that one aspect of the CDC guidelines. We are in a series called Unoffendable. And this series is, is one that has been basically attacking the notion that we have the right to carry our anger. We have the right to store it. We have the right to manage it. We have the right to delve it out as we see fit. And basically what this series, the audacious claim this series is making is go through the New Testament, look at anything that Jesus said, look at what the apostles said about what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to be someone who's following the Spirit's lead. And one thing you never see on any list is anger. I don't care if you tag it righteous anger or self-righteous anger or I'm better than y'all anger. It doesn't find, you don't find it anywhere there. In fact, the only thing we're supposed to do with anger is kick it to the curb as quick as we possibly can because it's radioactive. It's something that we can't manage. God can, but we can't. So the best thing that we could possibly do is delegate it to the only person who could do anything about it, which is him. And so we talked about that. We actually even talked about, yeah, the idea that, that righteous anger isn't even a thing. And when we, and it was so amazing that when we had that sermon about the fact that we really don't have the right to be offended, it, it offended people. In which I was like, how perfect. This is like we're, getting do, we're doing our homework right away. This is phenomenal. So this series now, this is the thing where a lot of people are like, you know what, I'm tr- starting to track with it. This is a foreign idea to me, but I'm rolling with it a little bit. And it couldn't come at a better time because 2020 is a dumpster fire. But the truth is, I'm rolling with it. I'm working on me. I'm like ditching my righteous anger. But there's one problem. There's one reason why I can't go there. There's one reason why I can't finish the work. I'm doing my part, but there's a big problem with me finishing this whole thing. You know what it is? What is it? That's right. Them. Like if it wasn't for them, like if it wasn't for my wife, or if it wasn't for my husband, or if it wasn't for my girlfriend, my boyfriend, or my boss, if it wasn't for that, that person who wronged me so much back in the day, if it wasn't for... I would have no problem being unoffendable. Like, I would be like the coolest, most zen person you're ever going to find. But them, and honestly, biblically, the reason why them, they are such an issue for us, why we can't get over that, is this. Pride. And I'm not talking about the good pride, like the pride like, oh, I feel like self-confident. I'm talking about the pride that gets like lodged in our heart and causes us to say, I have the stinking right to hold on to this anger. Because I have been wronged. <laughs> right? 
I mean, pride, every, every part of life will impact. Your pride is rooted in your ego. It's like your self-identity. or It makes you feel less or something. And this gets attacked all the time, right? At home, at work. Pride is always attacked. Like for me, one, just one small area. Um, like whenever, like, it, this happens all the time. Someone has a baby and uh, they uh, think that it's cute with this little, like, baby toddler thing to, like, take the hair, like the little hair that this kid has and, like, get, like, shampoo and and give the little kid like a little miniature full hawk thing, and they take a picture and say, oh, it looks like Pastor Errol. <laughs> now, the way that impacts my pride is because that little six-month-old still has like 10 times as much as hair, amount of hair I have, way more, and it makes me super, super jealous. Pride is something that gets attacked all of the time, all of the time. And uh, one of the things, again, it comes back to ego. Brand Hansen in the book Unoffendable, which totally, if you don't have it, you should pick it up. Or think about the most offensive person you could think of and buy it for them. He says this, hurt joints are like hurt egos. They hurt when they are inflamed. Got a great big ego? You're going to get hurt all the time. Hurt joints are like hurt egos. They hurt when they are inflamed. And he goes on from there. If you are constantly being offended... Repeat that, because that applies to one or two of us. If you are constantly being offended, you need to honestly evaluate your inflamed ego. Dum, dum, dum. The thing that, as much as pride prevents us from seeing people without anger, the antidote is humility. And this is something we see all throughout Scripture. The humbling of a person Basically having a right view of them, of self, right view of God, and right view of others. That actually is what, that's, that's exactly what this should be defined as humility. And just as far as the way it fleshes itself out in our life, the more humble, a more humble view of self leads to a more helpful view of others. Let me just put this in real practical terms. I don't care how great a husband or a wife you are, how great a boyfriend or girlfriend you are, how great a, a kid of a parent you are, how great a, a student you are, how great a coworker you are or boss you are. No matter what, whoever you are, whomever you are, you will be a more helpful person to everyone in your sphere of influence if you are humble. If you upped your humility... You, wherever you're at, like, okay, I'm 75%, great. If you went up to 80, it would have real-life impact in every single relationship that you actually have. And the place that you start working on humility is actually not even self. It's actually God. If, if you've got your Bibles or you have your Bible on your phone, go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is a passage that Paul writes, and the whole book of Romans is just like, it's unreal. It's an amazing book. It's, it's just like basically why we believe what we believe. If you're a new believer and you want to walk through this with someone, this would be a really good book to walk through. I mean, I'd say read the Gospels, hardcore, but, but go to Romans because Romans fleshes out. Right before this, he says, man, it's not just like some bad people that sin. Everybody sins. And, and Paul is saying this. He's like a super religious guy. He's like, everybody sins, including me. And he gets into chapter 4 and he starts saying, so what justifies us? Like what makes us okay with God? Because I know myself, and I know my heart, and how can I be okay with God? And, and so he says in chapter 4, well, let's just look at the hero of the faith, Abraham. Like Abraham, like if you're a Jewish kid, the trading cards that you would trade would be Moses and Abraham. Those guys were like total, like the, the best cards to trade. Because they were the heroes of the faith. And so he goes right to Abraham. Because a lot of these guys are like, okay, in order to be justified by God, I got to like do all the right stuff. I got to do all the, like the laws from the Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. And he's like, Really? What about Abraham? He was righteous before God way before the Ten Commandments happened. Oh, yeah, that's right. So this is what he says. Chapter 4, verse 16. 
Therefore, the promise, the promise that we have being rescued by God, comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those that are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Okay, the law of Moses. So he's, he's saying, look, it's beyond just the Jewish people. Man, this is like Abraham, which was way before Moses. He's the father of us all. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That's what I love about this. This God, that Abraham's got this faith. He's, and Paul's like, Abraham has got this faith in a God. He's a God who takes nothing and makes something out of it. What brings our humility? That. And if you want to have humility, if you want to up your humility, you need to see three people differently. The first person you need to see and have a right view of is God himself. You need to see God like an artist. Artists see things that other people do not see. Artists see things that other people that do, do not see. And, and look how, how Paul points this out. He says this. When he gets to the end of that, that verse, this is actually in the King James Version, which I thought did a better job on this than the NIV. Calls those things which do not exist as though they did. All right, now if you do that, if you see something that doesn't exist but you see it, you've got medical issues. You should be medicated. You're delusional. And yet, this is the delusional God we follow who sees a no one doing nothing and sees them as someone doing something because he's the someone that did it. God looks at Abraham and says, I can do something with Abraham. I, I can do something. Now, Abraham is no one from nowhere, but I can do, because this is the type of God that he is. He's a God which sees things that do not exist, and yet he chooses to see them as if they do. That's what artists do. And one of the things, I, I, love, I love being a pastor, and I love on the side getting a chance to do some art. Just recently, I had a chance to uh, do a mural in Plainfield at DNA um, Athletic Outfitters. It was super fun. It was like an eight-foot by eight-foot section. I'm really glad it's out of our garage because it was too big. But that was something that was fun to work on. But one of the cool things I love about doing art is that you get a chance to grow in it and get better and better. And I also like talking to people about art. And they, they want to know, when did you start painting? And how long have you liked art? And I've lo loved art my whole life, but I've only started painting in the past nine years. And it started when a guy came up to my driveway with his pickup truck and unloaded a bunch of these. Old, moldy, broken down, scratched up, nail-filled, scarred floorboards, a pile about this high. And he said, I think you could do something with this. And I said, okay. And then Julie came out. And Julie said, what? What are you going to do with this? And I said, I have no idea, but it's going to be cool. And so what ended up happening was this. I looked at these. I'm like, well, these work together, I think. I'm not a carpenter, but they've got, you know, tongue and groove, which was a term I learned after the fact. And so then all of a sudden they, I, they fit together and I glued them together. And then they turned into like this big old ugly wooden canvas of all these old scarred warped boards. And I'm like, man, that looks super cool. Now, again, my wife, I love my wife, but she looked at it and said, I don't get it. And rightfully so. It was just a bunch of broken down, scarred up wood glued together like a, like a second grade wood project or something. And then you start to paint on it. And then you turn that old dingy goofy wood canvas into a painting. Now, that's what artists do. They, they actually see something that other people don't. I love when people ask, how did that come, how did you think about that, or how did you think about those colors? 
And I don't know. I mean, it's just something that as you keep on going, and every painting I've ever done, there's been like, and I'm, uh, this is just the way I, I phrase it. This is the technical term for me. The oh crap moments of a painting going wrong and feeling over and over again like, oh, there's just, it's not going to come to be. And then, and then, all of a sudden it starts to surface. I love that. When I first started painting, I, I did this thing in Morris. Um, I, was, I attended the Liberty Arts Festival and I wanted people to wa- that would walk up and go, I don't understand. Why in the world does he have all this messed up wood glued together, painted on? I just put this sign up. Um, it says this. All pieces are painted on items discarded or given up upon. As the song says, grace makes beauty out of ugly things, which is an old U2 reference, old U2 song. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. And so when I'm driving down the road and I see, like, someone who's chucked, like, wood or there's decomposing wood from an you know, dilapidated barn or something like that. I love it. I love it. Not because I like seeing wood decompose, but because I see something there. That's the start of humility, is understanding that that is how God sees you and me, because God is, in fact, an artist. He sees things that aren't as if they were. Amen? Amen. And that all of a sudden goes from a right view of God to a right view of us, a right view of self. And the way that I should look at myself is a sidewalk. You want to see something super gorgeous? This is awesome. It's pretty hot. Check this out. Mmm. Yeah? I mean, have you ever, thank you, Luke. Have you ever walked around and just went, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, look at that. No? Okay, hold on. Um, there we go. Yeah? Here, ignore, ignore the obnoxious people. Look at that. Whoa! Okay, so here's the thing. When we get to concrete. Like, I, I, you may have done this before when you're like, walk around Chicago. It's, I don't even know how I could walk on this. This is just beauty. It's gorgeous. Have you ever spent time just looking down on the sidewalk that you're walking on and just like, this is amazing. Have you? No. Why? It's concrete. It's functional. There's no beauty there. And you would say that. And that shows that you're not a sidewalk artist. Because a sidewalk artist doesn't just see the sidewalk. The sidewalk artist isn't delusional. He sees the sidewalk, but he sees something else there too, yeah? When a sidewalk artist sees concrete sidewalk, he sees a canvas. A canvas that can produce color. A canvas that can can actually surface images that other people would never have seen. People walked on this concrete, spat on this concrete urinated on this concrete, and it went from that to being a piece of art. These artists take people to other dimensions and other worlds. These dudes are magicians. Now, let's be honest. It's just concrete. If the concrete, if the sidewalk had the ability to think and speak, it would not be saying, I got bragging rights. Dude, I am so that. I am so that. I'm so gorgeous. I'm so beautiful. I'm the sidewalk. No, you were poured by a concrete layer, a dude who was just laying some concrete and he just, you know, cussing out the next guy next to him as he went on to the next job. That's it. You're concrete. But the crazy thing is this. Concrete has, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It is the, it is the canvas. It, it, it is the thing that the artist comes in contact with. Now, Paul, the guy who wrote the book of Romans, the guy who wrote Romans 4, talking about Abraham and his faith, he had this really, really cool perspective. Like at other points, he said, look, if I was like all about bragging, I could brag. Like, as far as a religious guy, I was the best of the best. As far as smart guys, I was the smarty pants. I knew everything about everyone, and I was good-looking too. He didn't say that part. But the other parts he did. He said, I was just like, 
I was like everything. People were just like looked up to me. And I used that as, I used that as my privilege and my authority to like say whatever I wanted to say. And people listened to me. And then he met Jesus. And all of a sudden, the script gets flipped. And when the script gets flipped, all of a sudden, he doesn't look at those other things. Not, not, he, he doesn't look at them like they were bad. Just in comparison to the grace of God, they meant nothing. He was humbled. He even said this. One time he said um, in the book of Romans, actually later on in chapter 12, he says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. All right, so here he is. He's a smarty pants, super religious guy, highly respected, a scholar. And so he's going to like use that to show his authority, his privilege over everyone. So what is it he's going to say with all that authority? This is what he says. Don't think you're better than you really are. Don't think that you're better than you really are. Instead, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Like, he's saying, even the faith that you have in God is a gift to you. So, like, there's no place to brag. There's no bragging points here. That, that gives us the ability to say, like, no matter how much my ego gets stroked by, by the good things that I've done or what people compliment me about or this one time or, you know what, I haven't done anything in my adult life worthy, but when I was a junior in, in high school, I made a touchdown and I'm still vamping off of that even though I'm 58. You know, that, that, that people, like, they live this way. But when we come in contact with what Paul is saying, we recognize the fact that God has, gives us a proper view of ourselves. We are sidewalk. And because of that, we don't have the, the, the position or the posture to just be angry at people who are calling us out. Like we're a sidewalk. Like we're just like a cracked, broken piece of like concrete. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, um, one of the early reformers, put it this way. He said, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. In other words, if someone comes up to you and is like, man, you are such a jerk, you should say, you don't, know how, you don't know half the story. You should talk to my wife. If someone's like, man, you are just messed up, like, oh, I can give you the introduction that will just bring your eyebrows back, but that's just the introduction of a larger book of how truly messed up I am. The truth is, a Christian, this is this thing that's amazing about Christians who really understand the gospel. Christians understand, I am, in fact, sidewalk. That's what I am. But I'm not a doormat. I'm not just to be walked upon. I'm a sidewalk. That's what I am. But I'm a sidewalk that's been impacted by the artist. The sidewalk artist who can actually surface detail and beauty and color and life in me. Not because of how great I am. Again, I'm just cat cracked concrete. But because he sees me that way. Do you know that Jesus sees you that way? Do you know that? Like, is your ego and our identity fed not by what you can do, but what others do? This is the, the turning point, okay? If we have a right view of God that leads to a right view of ourself, if we have a right view of ourself, all of a sudden we stop believing lies. You and I have grown up with a lie that you have to perform in order to be loved. In order to be loved, you have to be good. You have to be good at something. You have to be a moral person or you have to be somehow distinguished. You got to have a good grade point average. You have to have a good car. You have to have a good job. You have to have a good family. You have to have all these things. Check them off. Boom, boom, boom. You have to vote the right way. All these things. All these things that add up to this is what makes me whole. In order to do those, if, in order to be loved, I've got to do X, Y, and Z. And that changes depending on which group you're in. The gospel says false. That is not true. 
False. You are actually concrete. You are loved in spite of the fact that you're just concrete. You are valued in spite of the fact that you're concrete. You, you, are, you are looked at as art by the artist who's created everything that's worthwhile. Our, just as much of our, as our problem with pride poisons our relationship with God by thinking that I have to do something to earn this. And God says, no, I've done everything through giving my son to you, to die on the cross for you, to rise from the grave for you. Just as much as, as that corrects that, we actually upchuck the same perspective on other people that we impose upon ourselves. So just as much as I think that I have to, my expectation is I, the only way that I'm valuable or worthwhile is if I'm performing well, we do the same thing with others. They have to, the expectation is they perform well. The expectation is that they are doing good. The expectation is that they are actually, in order to, for them to have my love, they have to keep on or they have to step up or they have to do this. And by doing these things, boom, that's how I can show them love. And it's false. That's absolutely wrong. It's not true. One of the things we see instead is that we actually get a chance to see others differently. We see God as an artist, we see ourselves as sidewalks, and we actually see others as rough drafts. See, the thing is, is that um, just as much as our default understanding that our ability to be loved stems from our performance, we treat others as if they need to perform well in order to be loved. And when they fail us, and they always fail us, relationally, politically, vocationally, whenever that happens, we get offended, we get bent out of shape, we explode because they've let us down. Now here's the thing, when we actually start seeing ourselves the way that God sees us, we actually have, we're better positioned to look at others well. Now I just want you to think about this. What if we actually thought of people this way? Um, I'm just going to paraphrase uh, Bob Goff when he said, cut each other some slack. We are all rough drafts of the people we are still becoming. Cut each other some slack because we are all rough drafts. Rough drafts of the people we are still in the process of becoming. That's something that's true. If you, if you don't believe it, you have to understand that this, is, this idea is amazing. Now, what if Christians actually were people who owned that reality? What if we were rough draft believers? That we not only saw ourselves as rough drafts, but we looked at other people with that expectation. The reason we get bent out of shape with people is because we're expecting that they should, you should know better than that. You should know how to drive better than that. You should know how to speak better than that. You should know how to think better than that. You know better than that. What if the expectation was that we are rough drafts? We are not final products. We are actually, and Philippians 1.6 says this. Paul says, be confident, I'm being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you, you rough drafts, is going to carry it on to completion. What if we looked at people that way? That could change everything. It could radically change everything. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, one of the things that I got to just confess here real quickly is this. Uh, I messed up this week. This week, I, I, I was studying. I was going to get ready for this sermon, and I had written down the passage we were studying, Romans 4. Um, but then when I transcribed it onto something else, I wrote Romans 14. And so I spent this huge amount of time studying a passage that we weren't going to study at all this weekend. And I'm like, wow, this passage is amazing. I'm so glad. But I'm like, this doesn't sound like the passage I originally wrote down to study. Oh, well, keep going, because I'm like, man, every verse is just phenomenal. This is so cool. This is so pertinent, so appropriate. So not the verse I was supposed to study. I was supposed to study Romans 4, 17. He who looks at things that are not and sees them as if they are. 
And yet, I think that this is kind of one of those cool divine ways that God, like, uses people's incompetence to do something super cool. Because all of a sudden, I started seeing in this passage things. I'm like, whoa, I did not even see that before. This is a debate. See, back in the first century, churches disagreed with each other. Weird, I know. But what they would do is they would actually divide over issues that were not that big of a deal, but they were a huge deal at the time. And so when we read these passages, we go, like, this doesn't make any sense. This is an argument that's taking place between two groups of people in this church in Rome. And Paul is saying this. There's one group of people that are Christians, and they're Greeks. They're like, we didn't grow up with, like, the Old Testament, the Leviticus, Deuteronomy, saying you can't eat a pig, or you can't do this, or you can't do that. We didn't grow up with any of that. Our entry-level understanding of God was Jesus, and he is freedom, and he's forgiven my sins, and this is amazing. Like, let's have a barbecue. Let's have a pig roast. Come on. Everyone come on over. And they're like living out their freedom. Paul calls them the meat eaters, the strong. Over here, we've got a bunch of people that were in the congregation that were Jewish by birth, but they've accepted Jesus as their savior. But they're like kind of weird, weirded out by the fact that some of these pagan people, they eat pigs. Those, that's like off the grid. We're not supposed to do that. In fact, not only that, some of the meat that they have, that's been sacrificed to pagan idols. That's like, woo, super bad. And so, like, what we should do is we should avoid that. I mean, I'm, I'd rather be a vegetarian than be one of these, like, messed up people that say they're Christian, and yet they're eating whatever they want. And so Paul calls these guys the weak, the vegetarians, and these guys the strong, the meat eaters. Now, don't, don't think too much about that, okay? It's not like he's not calling out vegans or vegetarians. He was just saying that as far as the faith, Paul, was, Paul grew up in this camp. He understood this camp. But he said that as far as the gospel is concerned, man, we do have this liberty. That's not accurate. But he says in spite of the theological inaccuracy of these guys, these guys are still being jerks. They're using the fact that they feel like they're, they're smarter and writer than anyone else to pick on these guys. They're going on Facebook. They've got these huge old blog posts. It's awful. And so what happens is Paul gets into the mix and he says this. Now, he's talking to both of them. Now, receive the one who is weak in the faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. Dum, dum, dum. He continues. One person believes in eating everything. That's these dudes over here. But the weak person eats only vegetables. These dudes over here. But you are, but you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother and sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is where Tupac Shakur got the idea of only God can judge me. This passage keeps on. Therefore, we must not pass judgment on one another, but rather determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before a brother or sister. Why? So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. As important as this divisive issue is, as radically dividing as it is, as much as there's theological rationale on both sides, why would you do you let something like this separate you, keep you apart? Paul's speaking in and saying, the amazing reality of the gospel is that, jo- that God is the one who can judge us. And because God judges us, man, we're in a radically different place. We're rough drafts. We can actually say, you know what, I'm looking over at these people, I don't agree with them at all. But God's still working on them. And these guys... And these guys are all pagans. I don't get it. But I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to be super judgy of them anymore because of the fact that God is still working on them too. There's this amazing picture of unity that we see in this passage. What if we were like that? What if we were rough draft Christians? Rough draft Christians know a more humble view of self leads to a more helpful view 
of others. My friend Victor Gamboa, I, I've told you the story before, but man, the guy, when he first became a Christian, um, he was, he was in, just messed up with a lot of sin. I mean, we were, he was 13 years old, but he had done some serious stuff up to that point. And all of a sudden, he, he hears the gospel, that God looks at him like an artist, that even though the, the, the cracked and broken sidewalk of his life was a mess, God chose to bring art out of it. And you know what that did in Victor? It changed him. It changed the way that he looked at other people. Because now he starts seeing other people through a humble vantage point. He starts seeing them like rough drafts, just like he's a rough draft. And so what does Victor do? I'm like, I'm like Victor, we should invite people to youth group. And he's like, yeah, we should. Ogre. And he goes over to Ogre. And when I say Ogre, Ogre, okay? Ogre was like, I think he was like six feet Eight, I don't know. I, I was like, I was like still going through puberty, so he might have been five foot nine, but he just seemed big. He was a big guy, like smelly. He had this big old jean jacket with all these like pentagrams and everything all over it, a, um, a Megadeth t-shirt, combat boots. He'd cuss out teachers. He would cuss out teachers, folks. And I was, I remember whenever he would start, I'm like, and it, was, it was just exciting. His name was, his real name was Jason. And Jason, whenever he would like move into a room, he had no friends. He would beat up on kids. He was the biggest bully. He was the biggest mean kid on planet earth. And Victor's like, ogre. And he goes over to ogre and he says, hey, ogre, you should come to youth group with us. And I'm there. I'm standing right next to Victor. I'm like, I'm like, no, he's going to beat up our youth pastor. No, I'll probably cuss out my mom. No. And he did. He actually, like, I remember, like, just him, like, talking. My youth pastor went and helped uh, Victor and I pick him up. And I just remember, like, Ogre, as soon as he got in the car, just, like, one F-bomb after the next. So I'm like, just like, dude. I'm like, thinking, Victor, this is why you don't do that. You know what Jesus was like? Exactly what you should do. See, a hard-hearted church kid like me thought that God looked at the pretty ones and the moral ones the ones who've got their life together, and then he'll save those ones. But the gospel is just the opposite. The, the gospel goes after the ogres. I love that one. That one. That one. A humble view of self is a more helpful view of others. Every single person in the family I grew up in, we're all rough drafts. Every single one of us. Of the five kids, we've gone through divorce and addiction, brokenness, brokenness that's divided the family. The thing that I love about the fact that all of us are Christians is the fact that each and every one of us, man, when you get a chance to see the amount of decades that add up of God working through hearts that eventually get this. Oh, amazing. We're not perfect. We are so far from perfect. If you don't believe me, come over at Christmas. But the amazing thing is we are all rough drafts being worked on by the great artist, amen? And that changes the way that we are postured towards one another. I, and I love how you as a church, you showcase this. You are rough drafts too, you get that. You live that out, you flesh that out. I see how you unite when, when things are easy to divide. I'm blown away by that, I really am. We need to continue to push ourselves deeper. 2020 is not a dumpster fire. I mean, 2020 is a dumpster fire, it's awful. But 2020 is humility practice. It's the laboratory in which God is going to showcase his best work in your humility, in your ability to humble yourself. When you go on Facebook or you go on Twitter 
and you, you are engaging socially with people, this, this is the quality, the descriptor that should be described in everything that you're posting. Everything. Why? Because you don't have all your facts? No, because you're a Christian. There's not a single person that's going to be at your funeral. Your kids and your grandkids, they're not going to be at your funeral saying, I know most of you know this, but we lost someone wonderful. They fought in the battle of Facebook in 2020. <laughs> they said it like no one else could. And even though they were very brazen with what they said, I mean, their compelling arguments is part of why so many of you are here today. No, that's not going to happen. There's not a single person that's going to come up to you in an airport and, or a jewel and say, I saw what you posted yesterday. Thank you for your service. No, not a single person. There's nowhere that you're going to see that. But one thing you will see is this. People will remember your humility. They will remember the fact that you hold on to truth and convictions and also have love and humility simultaneously. Not because you're awesome. Not because you're just this amazing piece of art that's made yourself. Because you're cracked concrete that Jesus loves. That Jesus has done amazing work through. I am so, so excited at what God is going to do through this season at our church. I'm so excited at what he's going to do through this season of Christians in the community because we are postured to live out something so countercultural, nobody's doing it. Even a lot of Christians. But we can be different. We can follow God's lead. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you are the one that when we need an example of what humility looks like or when we feel that we're so right that we don't need to be humble because we've got the right facts, all we have to do is look at your example. That in love, God, you went from being divine to being God in man. You became a human. Not just to walk around and give some good teachings actually to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord God, we need humbling. As people, we are full of pride. And God, it's carbon monoxide. Sometimes we don't even smell it, but it's there. And it's the enemy of the work that you want to do to create in us a humble and soft heart. God, as much as I hate the details of this year, I thank you for the fact that you've given us an opportunity to exercise the muscle within our soul that you have put in place to show the world a different way to live. God, I pray that you help us as a church, Mission Bible Church, to be on that mission, following your lead, laying down our rights, laying down our prerogatives out of love for one another, and we will give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen.